we read the uh, passion narrative at this point because this is um, the beginning of Holy Week. So we have, by reading that much text at this point in time, we have um, set up what we are going to experience for the coming week as we remember Jesus' suffering, his death, his burial, and then ultimately his resurrection. If you will, let's flip our Bibles back to our Ephesians passage, which is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, to take upon himself our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and come to share in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Well, you are familiar with the, uh, I'm sure, with the, with the phrase, show me the money. You're, you're, we know in our world, when we hear that, what somebody's looking for is evidence. We're, we're, we're really not looking for actually somebody opening their wallet and showing us real money. But what that really means is words are cheap, but your actions will prove it. Well, this is kind of what, as we, as we walk through this glorious passage today, it ends with that kind of show me the money. You can tell me you're justified. You can tell me you are a Christian. You can tell me you are a believer. You can phrase this in many ways, but there will be proof if it's true. So this is kind of what this passage is going to drive to. In the beginning of uh, Ephesians, in chapter 1, Paul addressed salvation from God's perspective, how he blessed us with all these blessings in Christ. And then um, in the end, he would put all things in subjection to Christ. And so at the end of chapter 1, that's kind of where it ends. So then in chapter 2, he talks about salvation from the person's perspective who has been saved. Our passage today then demonstrates God's extraordinary love for lost sinners who by grace give evidence of this love by how we live. So this is is one of these one-way love stories, and this is a love that actually transforms. So the first thing we're going to look at is you are not who you used to be. Or we're going to look at who you were. What is your assessment of mankind? Are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? And and if you're more on the pessimist side, I might say that that's a realist. Do you think most people are good? Like there's a popular country song that says, that's like it's repeating phrase. Most people are good. That's That's what the singer believes. And, and frequently you talk with people and that's, that's the kind of perspective people have, that most people are good. 
And yes, sure, there are bad people. Oh, nobody's perfect. There's a problem, but for the most part, most people are just good. Well, the second position um, might be one where, my, where mankind is not well, maybe even sick, but there's still hope because he's still alive. We're still alive, so therefore there's hope. There's hope for something better. There's hope for a return to something better, something, uh, some improvement. If, if the person is awakened to their problems, maybe they will turn and change. So it's not hopeless, simply because there is still life. The third position is maybe the most biblical position. Uh, well, it is. It's the most biblical position, which says when it comes to man's relationship with God, for instance, one is dead. So it's not, it, it's not that we're not good. Uh, we, the Bible would say we're not good. In and of ourselves, we're not good. The Bible would say that in and of ourselves, we have no opportunity to turn or choose God. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is what the Bible says. So we're going to look beginning in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of, of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. John Stott says that uh, of this passage, he says, Paul first plums the depth of pessimism about man. And then he rises to the heights of optimism about God. And it is this combination of pessimism and optimism, of despair and faith, which constitutes the refreshing realism of the Bible. And we've talked about that before, about how, how the Bible doesn't put on airs and simply tells the truth, even when it's so unflattering. Martin Luther would say that our wills are bound, and they are not free. But our wills are bound to Satan. Our wills are bound by the evil one. Meaning that we simply go after what it is we desire as we understand it. And so there's this default nature in us, which would be that our wills are bound and we can't even choose God until God acts. We can't even pursue him. In our natural state, we don't love God. We discussed this last week. In our natural state, we are enemies of God. We have this innate desire to find rest, to find fulfillment, to find peace and security. Human flourishing. And the prince and power of the air offers many false options. So as we're running headlong after what it is we desire, 
We may be striving for good things, but we don't find the rest and the fulfillment in what it is we find. Paul lays out this who we were. He says, by nature, we walked in sin, following the prince of power of the air. We were among the sons of disobedience. We were ruled by the passions of our flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, he says. And for our world today, this is very unfamiliar language, just even to speak of wrath, to speak of God having wrath. Some people don't even want to hear this. It's just biblically accurate, and it is what it says. We're familiar with this God who is love. We have a hard time understanding that he can be both love yet have wrath because he is righteous, but he also demands justice. So this is unfamiliar language to us. The worldly mind, though, does not take God's wrath seriously because it does not take sin seriously. We would not believe what the Bible describes as sin, as sin. Now, big, the big items, big items, I, I gather a bunch of us around. But when we're talking about this bent nature, that we are self-centered and want to please ourselves, okay, there's a lot that falls under the sin category that we don't want to really call sin. And friends, if we don't call sin, sin, we will not repent of it. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 19, says, What is the misery of the estate whereunto man fell? Weird language. It's asking, what's up with our position after the fall of man? Genesis 3. So there's the sin that comes into the world. The fall of man is how we... Uh, that's, our, that's our short term for that. So the question is, what position are we in since the fall? The answer is, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, so made liable to all miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So this is our default nature. By the fall that happened in Genesis 3, and death entered our world, and this is this cosmic thing. It's not just that Adam and Eve ate of this tree where they shouldn't have eaten, but it had something more significant. It had more significance than that. And then the effects were very widespread. So death enters the world, and even creation is groaning under this um, curse that is on the world. So the Westminster Confession of Faith says that we lost communion with God during the fall, and that we are under his wrath and curse, and then we are subject to all sorts of whatever's going on in the world, the miseries of this life, even death itself. And then our default, our default position for eternal life is that in hell. Again, not popular language in our world. We know that without God's intervening grace, 
we would not turn to him or embrace this gift that, that he has given us, this gift of faith, and we would perish in our sin. We sing songs like that. So Paul lays out very well for us who we were, or if you're not yet in Christ, it's who you are. So then he turns in verse 4, and, it, and he's, what he's talking about is you've been renewed. Or he's talking about who you are in Christ. So verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, so Paul sets up, and we have heard and explored a little bit, the plight of man. But then here comes this great news, and it comes with these two words, but God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in his commentary, these two words in and of themselves in a sense contain the whole of the gospel. So there's the plight of man, and then you have but God. Here's, here, you know you're, you're in for the gospel when you see the but God. So Paul is saying it's not because of what you have to offer or who you were, but because of God's character, because of who he is. He's rich in mercy because of that great love with which he loved us. He made us alive together with Christ, and it's in Christ. So it's this union with Christ, which we talked about, I think, just last week, and we've hit it on multiple weeks as we're looking at this but God through this but God series, we are, we are not just merely this like saved as individuals. No, we are united to Christ. We are in him. And as we are in him, then we're part of this family. So we have each other. We have brothers and sisters. We are connected to the body and we are connected to him. George Whitfield compared this great news to Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb. That voice that spoke and creation came into being. And as you're reading in Genesis 1 and 2, you'll, you'll realize it's as God speaks, as his word goes out, creation comes into being. Well, as he speaks again, recreation happens. And in, and in the example of Lazarus, Jesus calls for him, his Hands, his feet would have been tied. There would have been a big stone over the front of the tomb. But Jesus calls out of the dead, Lazarus. And Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Lazarus was dead. Lazarus could not will himself out of the grave. He was not in any position to grab along a life rope, a lifeline. I'll do this much and you do this much. No, Whitfield goes on to say, 
you also were bound by your own corruptions, as, as Lazarus's feet and hands must have been bound in this tomb. He says, you also were bound by your own corruptions, and a great stone of unbelief was placed on your dead heart. Yet by the word of the Lord in recreation, he speaks and brings you from death to life. Even while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, then he's the one who makes you alive. He says, by grace you have been saved. By grace, that reality there is that grace by its very definition is something that cannot be earned. It's something that cannot be merited. It is unmerited favor. Our radically helpless situation requires a radically miraculous cure, something outside of ourselves. He, God, didn't wait. He didn't wait on us to see if we were going to become worthy of salvation. He didn't save us for a moment and then unsave us after a few weeks or a few months, waiting till we messed up again, and then he disowns us. We don't become unsaved or ununited to Christ. We don't become unseated in the heavenlies. No, Paul says that in in Philippians 1, 6, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is certain, not of the power of man, but he is certain of the power of God. This is where our confidence needs to be. That God is capable of saving the worst of sinners. This is that point of eucatastrophe that Kirk talked about. I think when Kirk started our But God series and used that word, well, uh, that would have been one word I'd never heard in my life. I thought, and I thought it was very funny that Kirk, our plain speaking guy, used that one and some other four-syllable word in that, in that sermon. Now, the other one I actually knew. But uh, I, I, I enjoyed that. And then, weirdly, same day... Uh, Somebody we have in common also used that word. Then the other day, I'm at lunch with some people, and that word came up in conversation. I'm like, you people are just weird using this word, this eucatastrophe that I've never heard of before in my life. Where am I and who am I talking to? But that's that that's point where we're looking for something that, like, the, it's doom and gloom. And unless something big happens, unless there's some intervention from outside this current situation, we're doomed. It's, 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 it, is, it is hopeless. It's not like there's a little light at the end of the tunnel. And that's the description that Paul gave us. Our sin has laid us bare before a holy God. And this holy God, who is sovereign over all things, has made a way for mankind to be reconciled to himself. He bridged the gap himself. He became man in the flesh to redeem our bodies and our souls. 
by his spirit, he made us alive, calling us from death and darkness into the light. Jesus, the son of God, who was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he suffered and died in our place by his death on the cross. And he satisfied there the wrath of God that was due us. So on the cross, our Lord Jesus, God in flesh, satisfies the wrath of God, which was due us. And then he also then gives us his righteousness, which by his obedience he earned. So why? Why does he do that? If you were not saved based on what we were bringing to the table, then why? This has got to be our question. And frequently, I do wonder, why me? Why not this person? Why me? Why not that person? Well, the next thing we're going to look at is that you have a purpose. So you were saved, you were justified, you were made right for a purpose. So we're looking at you have a purpose or what you have been saved for. So verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you've been saved by grace through faith. So surely you had to exercise faith to be saved then is what it's saying. Yes, yes, that is true. Faith is this conduit by which salvation and grace is apprehended. Who's exercising the faith? Well, you are. We can know our own personal story of how it came to exercising this faith. We realized that our, we actually had sin, which needed something more than ourselves to cover. And then we trusted Christ to cover those sins. We can talk about our own personal experience in that. But Paul says, but this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So this faith that you apprehended this grace with, this is also a gift of God. You would not have the faith to apprehend the grace if God had not given it to you. Now we are bent from the fall at Genesis 3, and part of that sin nature, part of that indwelling sin, we are bent toward works righteousness. And then we as good Americans, we desperately, we just want to have something to do with some part of our salvation. We like to be in control. One who has received this extravagant grace should have the marks of humility and gratitude, as well as excelling in love. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this transforming radical grace changes us from the inside out. We are no longer opposed to God, but he changes, uh, changes our want-tos, if you will, so that we desire what God commands and, we de- and, and desire what he promises, our call-like from last week. He changes us. We desire what he promises. We want to be obedient to his commands. Romans 14, 7 says, for, no, for none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. So if true salvation brings us to the end of ourselves so that we are living for Christ, then we should be humble, generous people, willing to give ourselves away. So this brings us to this embattled question of our our works necessary for salvation. We know that as one has been justified, he or she is regenerated. If he's he's born again from above, the Nicodemus story. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus, He says, one must be born again from above. So we understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who has to do this work. And we understand that if one is not regenerated, he is not justified. So we're assuming that one is justified, he has to be regenerated. If he's regenerated, if you've been brought from death to life, there will be a change in what you do. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So when, depends upon how we phrase this question of our works necessary then for salvation. Okay, we're justified by Grace alone through faith alone. Got that? It's just that that faith is never alone. That grace is never alone. It is going to change the person. So tell me whatever you want, but show me the money. Paul's saying right here, show me the money. If God created you for good works, then they are expected. If you have no desire for good works which he has prepared, then one must revisit the whole topic of justification. One must question, have I been justified? There there is nothing of the Lord's people that I am drawn to or fed by or want to participate in. I can claim I'm a Christian because I want to go to heaven But I don't really want to be around a bunch of people like you because you're hypocrites. I'm the only one that's got it right. So I'm not going to come around you. Yeah, I got Bibles. Well, I'd have to go find them. 
But no, I don't really read him. No, I don't really know what his word says. But yes, I'm a Christian. I'm going to go to heaven when I die. No, 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 no. But my, my people would not say, those closest to me and my family would not say, they've seen a life change in me since I claimed faith, if I were being honest. I don't have a real desire for holiness. And I really just don't have time for all that Christianese stuff. I don't like institutional church anyway, but I like Jesus. So the old cranky Jim would say, well, if you like Jesus, you probably ought to like what Jesus likes. Jesus seemed to like her church, his, his church, because he gave himself up for her. He loved his church. And if you're truly regenerated, if you're truly justified, if you've truly received this grace by faith, then you will want to work. You will do good works. It's like not optional, but this is the show me the money. You can say whatever you want, but if you're not interested in the works, then perhaps you need to revisit what justification really means. Perhaps you made a decision. Perhaps you made a choice. But perhaps the Lord was not in this at all. Perhaps what we really need to hear is the true gospel being presented so that my, by, by his grace, I, I can now see my sin and how I'm laid bare before a holy God. And there is no way I can bridge that gap. So therefore, I trust in Christ to do that. So if you are justified in that right standing with God, those who are justified by grace through faith will do good works. So, did he do this so that you may boast and be glorified in any way? Well, of course not. This is the incredible plan of God so that in your works, in your changed life, you will glorify your Father in heaven. You become his spokesperson to tell the world that we have a loving God who saves sinners like me. How is your life a demonstration of this built-in apologetic, if you will? The apologetics, that defense for the faith. Let me, let me help you see that we have a true God who cares about you. Well, how does your life demonstrate this built-in ap apologetic? I know there must be a God because I see that he saved a sinner like you. How has your life changed because your heart has been formed more and more into the likeness of Christ? Are you more patient with others because of your great love for God? How has your love for God made you want to honor your parents. Does it? How has your love for God formed your discipline for your children? Does it? How has this grace received changed your priorities in your life? 
So tomorrow you die. We can find your calendar and we can find your checkbook. If we look at your calendar and your checkbook, would they give evidence of your love for God? Would your life give evidence of a response to this grace received? Would there be proof that could be found in your absence? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What is it that you think about? How has this grace that you've received enabled you to live not for yourself, but made you desirous of giving yourself away in love for others? What works have others affirmed in you? Do you have people in your life who recognize where you have been transformed? Would there be people who could say, I see these works in you, these evidences of grace in you because of your relationship with our living Lord? And will that go beyond simply being the nice person? Now, if, if you were not a nice person and it turned you into a nice person, that can be quite the stark contrast. But is there something more than simply being neighborly, being mannerly, is there, some, is there something others would testify and, and affirm, I see that the Lord has worked this in you? These are the things I think we need to be thinking about because this verse 10 is in there. So our works do not save us, but that grace alone through faith alone is never alone and it will be accompanied by works. This is what you were made for. It, God's not making this mistake. So he, for those whom he has loved, for those whom he has called, for those whom he has justified, he has given them works to do. And we may only think of that in our ability to go and, and serve somebody else, someplace else. But let me encourage you, in this still the season of Lent, and as we enter into this Holy Week, I want you to be looking inside and saying, how has my grace received changed the way I live my life, and would others be able to give witness or testimony to that? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.